0: All right, everybody, we're back. Chad, I have one question for you as we get this episode kicked off. Will you ever underestimate the heart of a champion?
1: No. No. (laughs) You can't. You can't.
0: You really can't. We're tied to the guy, Rudy Tomjanovich. Breaking news today. Opening thoughts.
1: I. I mean, I'm, I'm. I really like it. You know, I touched on it briefly last week when we talked a little bit about what what to expect of this Wolves team and we talked about a little bit with Miami Heat what that team looked like you know they don't really have a huge star they got Jimmy Butler they got Bam Amadio Gordon Dragic but they have a lot of young guys that just fit really well within that team and one of the things the key differentiators that I pointed out last week was that they do have Pat Riley a guy who's been there done that it's got the respect of players league-wide and I think Rudy Tomjanovich is one of those guys that you know he's not Pat Riley but we're not going to get Pat Riley. He's the next best thing. So I have no idea what, how much impact he's going to have on the team or anything like that. It's, you know, this isn't like the move to get us over the hump, but (laughs) it's, it's a nice tool to add to the box. You're, You're trying to build something and I don't really see any downside to to that kind of move it was a pleasant surprise it, like just came out of nowhere it
0: really did and if anybody is uncertain rudy Badanovich, the former coach of the los angeles lakers and most famously the houston rockets uh joined the minnesota timberwolves today as a consultant in their front office he's going to work with them on free agency and draft scouting rudy comes from a long line of coaching he played in the league uh, for the houston rockets as well won two championships with them in the 90s in 94 and 95 during jordan's uh, Baseball hiatus, uh, but famously coached uh, Hakeem Lajuan, Clyde Drexler, Sam Cassell, uh, Vernon Maxwell, a large group of players there that came, became very famous during that time. Uh, he then moved on to coach the Los Angeles Lakers and he was there until 2004 um, and then left and really only made a stint with USA basketball after that uh, in 2006 before just kind of disappearing for a while. And he's been out of the NBA for about 15 years, but pops back up today. He spent about two years with uh, Gerson Rosas in Houston before he left uh, at that time. So there's a little bit of a connection there, but uh, just like Chad said, a very unexpected uh, announcement this morning saying that he's going to be joining the staff. Uh, It really seems to me, Chad, like Gerson is really following along with his tendency to try to fill every area of possible expertise in his front office trying to pull in joe branch for the the player agent role you know emmanuel rohan is the assistant gm he's a very he's a analytics cap guy he's got Gianluca Pescucci who's a who's a scout scott laden who's just been around forever who's been kept around um ever since the tibbs days sasha gupta who's kind of the the idea man and another numbers guy and then himself coming from a scouting background and they really haven't had except for maybe laden who was not one of his guys just a veteran presence in that room who really knows how the league has worked, who has the connections all over the place. And Rosas has been around for a while, but not, not longer than Rudy.
1: Yeah. I mean, and who knows how, what Rudy's connections are like, like you said, he hasn't been active in 15 years, but um, I don't think you'll ever even read a bad word about the guy. Like, you know, everything I've read and heard about him over the years is he's a player's coach. Lots of players like um, him. I remember one of the reasons why Charles Barkley chose to go to the Rockets was not just the opportunity to win, but he really was a fan of Rudy Tomjanovic. Um And so he just has that it factor of, of, of players that like him. So, um, yeah, I think I think Rosas is trying to do is just, if there's talent to be had, whether it's on the court, off the court, wherever, he and they're available, he's going to make a run at him and try to, you know, I like that. It, that kind of leadership is what you hope for, right? Like, it's not this... Tibbs kind of way where like, yeah, Layden, you're here, but I'm I'm calling all the shots. I'm going to, it's really my team. Everything's me. Um, Rosas is really a a committee approach and he's, you know, let the best idea win kind of guy. Um, So I like that sort of mindset. I mean, it's, it's fun to, to watch. So it's it's exciting. You know, like you said, who knows what he's got. He did kind of pop up earlier, right? He was wasn't he in the Hall of Fame classes here? He was 2020 Hall of Fame inductee. Absolutely. So him and KG fellow Hall of Fame yep. class guys. So another sort of connection. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I will see. I guess it's just TBD and what what kind of impact he has. But um, it certainly doesn't hurt. We're not yeah. going to it's not like it's a a, a bad move by any stretch. I yeah, I think,
0: and we most likely will never know because you, it's hard to know the in, individual impacts of people in a front office. But, but we did find out today from Ryan uh, Ryan Saunders that he's been around uh, for the pre-draft process this year already, kind of silently behind the scenes. Uh, and Ryan has been able to take advantage and pick his brain and stick around there for a little bit of time to just kind of get some coaching chops out of him. So that's pretty exciting too, just having another veteran presence in the room who's really been through the coaching ringer.
1: Yeah, it tells you they they clearly felt good about that process this year with the draft that it, he fit the culture that they got going there, and you know, obviously if they're going to offer him this position full time, that things must have went pretty smoothly. I wonder. I don't I don't recall as as much, but what kind of relationship Flip and Rudy had? You know, that was Flip's first opponent, first ever playoff mm-hmm, opponent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was probably something there where I'm sure Ryan remembers that fondly as a young boy watching his dad's first playoff experience, you know. But, yeah, I don't know. It's, lots of interesting connections there.
0: There are. We'll see where it goes. And like we said, we'll probably never truly know. But it was exciting news this morning, something that popped up. It seems like the Wolves are in the news every day these days. Yeah, uh, it's
1: rare that the Wolves get a name, that somebody's name from, that was built elsewhere coming to this franchise. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's largely... People you haven't heard of, you know, David Kahn sort of had a name, but not necessarily for you know those kinds of reasons. Before he came here, it was at least a uh, front office person people heard of. But you know, even you know Kevin McHale had a name when we hired him, but he wasn't for his his ability to run a, a basketball team. It was for his play on the court. Mm-hmm. So we, outside of the the couple times like Rick Adelman when we hired him as coach and and Tom Thibodeau, those are really the only two guys I recall us bringing in in that kind of role that had any sort of reputation in the NBA outside of this franchise. And so it's not often that we were on the beneficiary side of that. No, it really isn't.
0: I mean, I I can still remember when Adelman chose to sign with the Wolves, and that was, I mean, that was insane. There's no reason why that should have happened, especially with David Kahn still in the front office. And everything I remember from the time was that the Lakers really had their choice between Adelman and Mike Brown, and they went with Mike Brown instead and he was available for the Timberwolves.
1: And I think we had at that time, I and mean, we'll get to this when we cover that era, but wasn't Don Nelson in for an interview, too? Oh, probably. Yeah, that makes I sense. I feel like people you were know, seeing him at you know McDonald's or something mm-hmm. in town. <laughs> and I, I, I feel like we even talked about it back then that we would have even been excited about Don Nelson. Oh, yeah. Because another guy with a big name, but another guy that we're like, well— why would he take this job? Is he just taking it as a paycheck and mm-hmm. really not going to be fully invested? And uh, Rick Adelman never gave you that sort of vibe. Of course he had the issues with his wife's health and stuff where yeah, his he final year to, was unfortunate and his ability yeah, to fully dedicate. But I mean, that was, you know, a bright spot for the, the franchise. So, you know, except hopefully... for JJ Barea, Yeah. <laughs> his usage of JJ Brea was just a travesty. We agreed. I thought we agreed in this whole um, creation <laughs> of this podcast. We wouldn't, we wouldn't speak JJ Brea.
0: <laughs> well, when you were walking through your list of GMs, whatever the first name you said was was just blocked out, in me and man, all heard was static. So I'm not quite sure <laughs> <laughs> where to go from that. But uh. all right, so we talked about Rudy. Big news from today. The big news earlier this week was another signing by the Timberwolves. Somebody that had been rumored that we should be should be going after. Uh, but didn't we didn't actually think would show up was Ronde Hollis Jefferson signs a, a veteran minimum training camp invite non guaranteed contract to show up to have some fun with the team and see if he can make this roster. Uh, at this point, it's looking like it's going to either be two of either Jefferson or Ronda Hollis Jefferson, uh, Jalen Noel or Jordan McLaughlin, who still has yet to sign with the team. So. Uh, to be determined on how that ends up shaking out after training camp, but we're going to know here pretty soon because training camp's going to be short. They're going to be playing games here pretty soon.
1: Yeah. And I mean, another guy, yeah, I was excited to bring him in. It's weird because it seems like, I mean, like you said, it's a guy that many people have been suggesting that the Wolves should, should have interest in. And then they bring him in. And then, you know, I saw some comments from like Ryan Saunders today talking about who might start at the power forward spot and whatnot. And he didn't even mention Rondé Hollis-Jefferson. Mm-hmm um uh, for any of those positions and i know he's on a non-guaranteed contract so you know more su- susceptible to being cut but he fits a need that we nobody else on this team really provides um being out you know maybe davis but davis is even older than him he's only 25 or 26 years old i believe still so he's still relatively young he's kind of had kind of an interesting career arc though i mean he's sort of was, you know, two or three years ago was kind of his, his best year, where he seemed like he was going to be one of these guys that's you know a high paid starting player on a team for a long time. And then here he is, just kind of scrounging for a job. It's, which I guess with this new era of basketball, where everybody has to be a shooter, right? It it hurts his his game a little bit. But terrific defender, you know. So I hope he makes the team. I mean, I I also want McLaughlin to make the team. So I don't know who I want to. <laughs> To for kick into the it? curb, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he how he does if he makes the team.
0: Yeah, four years in Brooklyn for Hollis Jefferson, including with D'Lo when he was there. Spent last year in Toronto playing for Nick Nurse and in that franchise. So lots of strong uh, relationships, lots of strong experience with with good franchises, and like you said, some good defensive chops coming in, being able to provide some versatility in, in the forward position. So seems like a player that would make a lot of sense on this roster. I'm very surprised they were able to get him to come in on a non-guaranteed contract. I thought he'd definitely have an offer elsewhere, but, um, but also like we said, it'll depend on who they're willing to give up. If they don't think they need a third point guard, maybe he and Noel both make the team. They're both there right now and McLaughlin isn't. So we'll see where they go from here. They have.
1: Yeah. Noel to me, I mean, I like Noel's game. He seems to me to be the guy that you have the most excess of, Mm -hmm. you know, we got a lot of wings now. I mean, he's sort of a combo guard. Culver can kind of be a combo guard. You already got, obviously, D'Lo and Ricky. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just like McLaughlin's game a lot. I, I So I like his game better than Noel's for what we need on this team. Um, but, I, I, you know, my opinion doesn't matter. It's really up to Ryan and Gersas. So we'll see who they go for. But it just seems like Hollis Jefferson would fit a bigger need than, than Noel or even McLaughlin at this point with what the, the rest of our – roster is shaped up to look like
0: yep a battle for that 15th roster spot uh which will include but probably not really include two other training camp invites including aid murky and tyler cook uh just emptying the journal here and these guys aid murky is a minnesota vet a minnesota guy uh, played at st croix lutheran high school uh spent spent the last four years at the university of denver he's a six five wing uh, i don't know literally anything else about him uh I don't know about you, Chad. You ever heard of him before?
1: I have not. Cool. Other than what I re- reading that what that he was invited to camp for the Wolves. Now. Exactly.
0: Uh, Tyler Cook, another guy. He spent three years at the University of Iowa. He's a 255 and fifty five pound uh, forward. Uh, listed at both power forward and small forward. He spent time last year in both Cleveland and Denver getting a little bit of experience with those franchises, but another guy that is just coming in on a training camp invite probably to round out the roster and give them full teams when they're doing some rotation. So uh, low chances that either of those guys make the team, but uh, you always got to watch out for that because they they do still have a two-way contract position open. So one of these guys could earn one of those spots in the G League with the team or even just with the team on a two-way contract to float up and down depending on what the G League actually does this year. So Keep an eye out for those two guys, see if either of them uh, can earn themselves a position with the team moving forward, which I believe brings us to 18 people in camp right now, not including, once again, McLaughlin. I don't believe he's there. I haven't heard anything um, from that perspective, but uh, they've been there today. They were kind of there all week, depending on when each individual player showed up. They've been doing different interviews, either... Uh, Beasley and Wancho earlier in the week talked together. Uh, D'Lo had his time. Towns came on yesterday, uh, gave a very uh, emotional and heartfelt interview with uh, the the local press here. Announced that he's been dealing with a lot of stuff this off season, and I don't want to get too deep into that because I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not going to try to predict how it's going to affect his game or where it's going to go from here, but obviously just a lot of heavy stuff, a lot of non-basketball related things that are Going through uh, Carl Anthony Towns' mind right now, that uh, we want to wish him the best and hope that this is a year that can help him move forward in the right direction.
1: Yeah, and hopefully, success on the court will help, you know, keep his mind off some of the stuff at home while he's at least playing, just so that he's not, you know, I mean, it's gut wrenching to hear, you know, all the loss he's suffered, you know, in recent months. And so, you just kind of, I know he, he specifically said basketball's not really a refuge for him anymore because. You know, part of it was tied to playing in front of his mom and other loved ones, you know, and, and um, that was what brought him joy was playing in front of them, not just playing for the sake of playing. And, and, you know, that's tough to hear, you. Know, but hopefully, you know, the one um, thing I saw tonight, he posted on his story on Instagram. It was the first time I saw him posting anything about basketball in a long time. And it was just a simple little video of Ricky Rubio throwing him out by alley-oop in practice today. So yeah, <laughs> he, you know, Clearly likes Ricky, and uh, a lot of that, you know, I'm only watching little clips of practices that I'm sure everybody's been able to see on Twitter and and Facebook and whatnot, but a lot of the clips, they showed those two guys were were next to each other a lot mm-hmm. of the time, so it's clear they got a good friendship and stuff, so hopefully that helps too, you know, just having guys around him that he can trust, you know, as friends, not just as teammates, and help him get through this rough period in his personal life with yeah loss.
0: yeah and as town has mentioned he was here with Ricky when Ricky went through this when he lost his mother um, which was once again for Ricky Rubio a, a heart-wrenching moment a something that made him question his love for the game of basketball and ask why he was even showing up to play every day and I don't blame any of these guys for going through that for wondering just kind of what's the point of all of this and if towns especially with what he's seen with with this virus and the loss that he suffered because of it if he had not showed up this year if he had just opted out of the season I wouldn't have blamed him one bit
1: no yeah of course not so the fact that he's even
0: there the fact that he's showing up to the team and he wants to be here I mean whether or not he wants wants to be there the way that he used to or if he just feels like this is his best option I'm as a Timberwolves fan I'm happy about that and I think it's got to mean something but
1: uh, yeah part of me kind of hope you know like they're used to losing, right? They've, he's had a lot of tough seasons outside of the one Jimmy Butler season, which mm-hmm. they made the playoffs, but was tough for other reasons. He didn't necessarily get along the greatest with Jimmy. It wasn't necessarily a fun season, even though they were successful. You hope, like, you know, part of it in my head, I, the way I look at it, it's like, okay, he's dealing with all this stuff at home. Then he's got to come play basketball on a team that's, you know, he's probably projecting that they're going to have a lot of rough nights still as they kind of figure this out, they got a lot of young guys still, a lot of new guys. So even if they all turn out to be good, there's going to be this learning curve. Hopefully success comes sooner than he expects. And it will sort of bring back that joy. And because right. he, he's one of those guys, he's, he's got the big smile. He always seems to have fun when he's out there playing. So you, you don't want to see anybody lose that, you know, love of the game. That's part of what makes you big fans. I mean, it's, it's why guys like Brett Favre so popular in mm-hmm. football, you know, because they, that joy just came out with everything they did and towns has got a similar demeanor like that when he's on the court. Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess we'll see, you know, D'Lo, you know, during his media, um, interviews, he was talking about watching tape on towns this whole off season and just saying, you know, the the guy's even a bigger monster than I, than I thought, just watching, you know, really deep diving on his gameplay. And he goes, I just can't wait to get on the court with him. So that, in itself will be funny and, and towns, you know, they're obviously, they're really good friends. They only got to play one game together last mm-hmm. year. So he, you know, he, you know, obviously you, you, wish everybody came in in high spirits and it was gung ho, but, um, you know, obviously that stuff's more important. So we'll see how it comes. You know, hopefully they get on the court, they have some early success and they start having fun right away. And guys like Ricky Rubio will make it more fun to play too. I mean, they're that style of basketball is an enjoyable one to play and watch. Yeah.
0: Uh- I mean, thirty-one years of being a Timberwolves fan has turned me into a skeptic. Which how could it not? I've I don't know how many years it's been since they've hit the over on their projected win total for a season, but there is almost no way of looking at this team's offense and not projecting a top-five offense. Yeah, and with the amount of talent they that they put on the floor and the way that that talent meshes and the way it works together not only with D'Lo and Towns but bringing Beasley back having Edwards available is just kind of a bulldozer Ricky Rubio always makes everybody around him better and if he can continue to shoot the way he has the last couple of years that's just going to impact the offense even more and Wancho just at the four around those guys is just almost a perfect compliment and if everybody stays healthy which I know heading into this season is not a guarantee it's not a guarantee for any team and it's always you hope that people will just stay healthy but if they have their team on the floor, this is going to be possibly the best offense, or at least the most fun offense we've ever seen them play. And Ryan's yeah. got to work to cut work cut out to figure that out and make it work. Because if they don't, if they don't have a good offense with the amount of talent that they have, Ryan's going to be on a hot seat very quick.
1: Oh, and it's going to be a long season, you yep. know, because they're they're not going to be a good defensive team, you know, even if if you know Davis and Hollis Jefferson both make the team and are playing meaningful minutes. You know, they, that'll only, you know, get them so far up the, mm-hmm. the the list of defense. But yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think what's the worst offense we had was like 14th last year since Towns has been here. And he's yeah, I mean, last year was one
0: of the worst offenses
1: games. we've had. Yeah. Yeah. Under him. And then we've had three top five offenses with Towns or maybe right, unless... one top four with Jimmy. I, I'm going off the top of my head. I just looking at the numbers, but um, I don't have him in front of me, but he's always been talented, meaning has always put this team in a top 10 offense position with far less efficient players. And even Wiggins and Levine, who are very talented, weren't nearly as efficient as some of the guys we have now like in shooting. Beasley's a much better shooter than either of them, for example. Delo's a much better shooter than either of them. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think the offense is going to be extremely satisfying to watch.
0: Yeah. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to walk through the Timberwolves' efforts to bring a franchise to Minnesota back in the 80s and even before that. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. This is Howell History. And since this is the history of the Minnesota Timberwolves, there's no better place to start than at the very beginning. Uh, we're going to bring it back all the way to 1926, when both Marvin Wolfenson and Harvey Ratner were born in North Minneapolis, about a block away from each other. They, uh, they played together on the high school basketball team for the Minneapolis North Polars. Uh, Wolfenson was the team captain, uh, highly respected, highly featured in the local newspaper as a, as a star player in the area. Uh, Ratner not so much, didn't even dress for most of the games, but uh, Wolfenson even went on and won the Mercury Award uh, in 1944, which was given to the outstanding senior male Jewish scholar-athlete in the Minneapolis area. So uh, lots of accolades uh, going his way, Chad. So um, very interesting that these guys were were that close, even though they they weren't close at all uh,
1: in high school. But kind of cool to look back and, you know, see that they were. Uh, they grew up together. Grew up in the same area, and then we got to take, sort of live the dream of actually owning a professional sports franchise at some point. And for these guys, like they got to, you know, they got to know each other, played on a basketball team together, and then here we are, you know, several years later, they they actually buy a team. So that's kind of cool that they they've known each other that long.
0: Yeah, these guys, you know, they eventually started business together. But after high school, 1944, they graduate. They both joined the war, as many young men uh, of that time did. Uh, Wolfenson was stationed in the Philippines, and Ratner was just stayed in the U.S. Uh, Wolfenson was known to challenge anybody he could find to baseball and basketball games while in the military. So uh, obviously the love of of athletics carried with him uh, moving forward from there. They both came back. Uh, from the war, not long after joining, since it didn't last for terribly long after they joined, but they started a, a business venture um, a little bit later, where they sold, they bought and sold used cars out of their parents' homes. Uh, so they were able to buy and sell about seven or eight cars together, and in a year's time, profit about three hundred, four hundred dollars a piece, um, and eventually decided to go into real estate together. And they each put down five hundred dollars to start their business. It's
1: pretty crazy how what, it sounds like such a small amount, but I'm sure in 1945 or you know early early 50s late 40s that that was probably a still pretty substantial amount of money
0: right you know i read a report saying that uh marvin uh, Wolfenson went to another one of his buddies and asked him if he wanted to go into business together the guy kind of turned him down and said no that's not for me so but he got he recommended ratner to him and marv was more like i I know that guy so he reached out to him they they decide that they're going to start this together and even neither of them really knows a whole lot about real estate but uh, they decided to give it a shot. So they have to. first thing they have to do is uh, name their business. And this is a story that I, I read quite often in researching this. So Marv, would, Marv said, I always kid him. I say we named it Marvin Realty. And the first letter, M, was for me. And the last two letters, I, N, for me. Harvin is H-I-R-V. So we gave him the middle three letters in Marvin, A-R-V. So we got three letters named after him, and I got three letters named after me. It just turned out to say Marvin. <laughs> so... <laughs> So Marv was really the, uh, the driver of this whole thing. but
1: He's the sales guy. Yeah.
0: Even, <laughs> with, his own, even with his own business partner. But. So they get into real estate. They start doing residential real estate. They do a few homes. And eventually they decide to start building apartment buildings together. Uh, starting in 1952. So they started with an 11-unit building. They went to, and Then they went to 17, to 34, to 136, to 306, to 700, and finally to an 834-unit apartment building. Uh, specialized in low to medium rent single bedroom apartment complexes for singles over 30 or married couples. And they even charged extra for kids as a means of discouraging families. So (laughs) I think they want people in and out as quickly as possible. But I'm not entirely sure why I don't quite understand real estate to that to that level, especially 1960s real estate. But that was that's how they started out. That's how they made a lot of their money.
1: That well, sounds a little sketchy to today's standards. <laughs> trying to keep up families, and yep. I'm sure, you know I had something to do with kids are going to do more damage, and you know they they don't want that, and they like you said they want people in and out so they can raise the rent. They get, have somebody come in, you know, they they start their life together. They buy a house, they move out, they can raise the rent to the next renters coming in, and just kind of keep churning that. It's it's probably a lot less hassle, you know, as you're, if you're a landlord and you got. Kids are always breaking something. So you are always sending the maintenance guy in to
0: mm-hmm.
1: fix a hole in the wall. Or something. I mean, I had three brothers growing up. We were animals. So we... <laughs> it's a good thing my my parents owned because <laughs> yeah, maintenance guy would have been in our place all the time.
0: Oh, there was a there was definitely a hole behind the wallpaper in my in my childhood bedroom that my head had gone through. So I remember
1: being when we thought we were ninjas, literally throwing ninja stars at the door, <laughs> my bedroom door. <laughs>
0: It's a smooth move
1: right there. Yeah. All right. So they're doing
0: real estate. Uh but they're still big into sports. They're still big sports fans. They still like playing. Um they actually together owned about three percent of the Lakers in the late fifties before that team moved to LA in the six in nineteen sixty. Do you know what their buy in was for the three percent? No, or- I do not know how much they purchased. It was just more of a Wolfenson was asked decades later, you know, about his history sure. with sports and he said he just mentioned that they happened to own a percentage. So I don't know if it was Technically reported at the time that they were minority owners or how much they had purchased that for, but, but yeah, he mentioned you know he was quoted saying that they owned about three percent of the team and uh, still big lovers of sports and playing sports especially. But as they got older, they more transitioned out of basketball and baseball into into tennis. Um, and together they started you know playing in uh, grown-up circuits around the Twin Cities. Um, and the the club that they played at, their home club, was in such disrepair and they were so disenfranchised with it that just because they had the money they decided to go build their own tennis club so in 1968 they had plans approved for a two hundred thousand dollar indoor tennis club which would start their tennis club empire here in the twin cities
1: i remember that even in the like 80s and 90s that i believe it was still around then you know where people were it was sort of like the swanky thing i guess you know there was like twin players that played tennis there and i had a friend whose mom was like a member so i remember we had to go there they had basketball courts so then at that point so we'd go there and shoot around while she <laughs> yeah. was playing tennis but um i believe it's the same one it was in richfield so i'm pretty sure it's the same well yeah same one. eventually they were all over the place all over the twin cities
0: minneapolis richfield bloomington Edina, st paul oakdale uh, they had double digit tennis clubs that they either built purchased or leased uh, at one point and it was just kind of uh, a way of them making their names known in the Twin Cities. And it wasn't even necessarily always for profit. It was just because they loved the sport, they wanted to keep expanding it, and they thought that was a it was a good way to um, to give back a little bit. They're actually in the, the U of M Tennis Hall of Fame um, because of all of the donations that they've made to their tennis program over the years. So just really, that's how they became well-known in the Twin Cities, especially as figureheads, and more so than just real
1: estate uh, investors. And really kind of elevated the game of tennis in the Twin Cities. I mean, it's not... It's not the market you would have expected to be a big tennis market, but it, it kind of Twin Cities has always kind of been hot with tennis. You know, they, there's some good tennis players have come out of this area. You know, they only get to play outdoors for mm-hmm. what seems like two weeks a year <laughs> before the <laughs> weather's horrible. Um, but yeah, they it, you know tennis has always been relatively popular in Twin Cities, and I can't help but think that they probably played a large part of that.
0: Yeah. So over the next couple decades, they go through this process of building all of these indoor tennis clubs and they amass more wealth through the real estate and that's when they start to strike up a little bit of an interest in sports franchise ownership Uh, and it actually didn't start in basketball it started with the minnesota twins Uh, in 1984 calvin griffith was looking to sell the team and uh, harv and marv got together and they made an offer for 52 percent of the team Uh, they offered 25 million dollars um, to buy half, just over half of the Minnesota Twins to be the majority owners. Um, but Griffith had made a promise to Carl Polad saying that if the team ever came for sale, that he'd, he'd give him the first chance to make an offer. So uh, even though their offers were fairly similar, um, the team ended up going to Carl Polad for between 30 and $32 million.
1: It would have been interesting because obviously Polad has a um, pretty sketchy history with uh, as a twins owner so it would have been interesting if harv and marv would have been yeah the twins owners and what that would have looked like i mean it's, you know obviously while polad had and it wasn't exactly endearing himself to the to fans because he didn't put a lot of money into the club they did win two world titles with him you know wh- what would have that looked like under harv and marv would they have you know sold out quicker um or would they have actually built a championship team you know that, that like polad did
0: yeah and that could have gone in a completely different direction i mean not only for the twins but also for the the future of nba basketball in the twin cities because in 1982 which had been the previous expansion, uh, the Dallas Mavericks came into play, and Minnesota had been mentioned multiple times as a possible expansion site at that time as well. And the guns, George and Gordon Gund, uh, who were also the owners of the Minnesota North Stars, were mentioned often as the most likely candidates to pay for an expansion team here in Minnesota. But they, at the time, said that $12 million was too steep. Uh, So they eventually purchased the Cleveland Cavaliers instead, which I can't imagine they got for $12 million. But... uh, they come into, they come into the story prominently as the expansion thoughts go through the Harvin Marv's minds
1: later. And you see how small of a world this sports ownership is. Cause mm-hmm. these names pop up with every, in every sport, you know, like the guns, you know, when like gun arena, you know, I mean, they're, you know, they've been around forever. You know, I, I had no idea um, until we started researching this, that they, they own the North stars, you know, and you were live. I only ever associated the guns with the Cavaliers. So it's, you know, it's, Obviously, the network of people who can afford a professional sports franchise, even when they were only $20 million, yeah, was still a pretty small network. It absolutely was. So after their
0: interest in the Minnesota Twins, they were mentioned as a possible group that might be interested in bringing a basketball team to Minnesota, as there had been a task force created by Minnesota Governor Rudy Perpich that had appointed George Mikan as the head uh, to try to figure out how they were going to get NBA basketball back here in Minnesota.
1: I, and I, I remember as, I mean, I was probably fifth grade, something like that. Uh, I, I remember it, like my dad talking about it, like that we might get a basketball team. Mm-hmm. But to that point, we had no basketball team. So I wasn't really a huge basketball fan um, really until one, the year before the Timberwolves existed was when I really started watching. So it was, it was a couple of years before I became a basketball fan. I was I was neck deep in baseball at that point in my life, but I do kind of remember the the, the news stories that, that minnesota was anxious to get a team i had no idea who harvin marv were as a fourth <laughs> or fifth grader
0: no <laughs> none of us as kids did but it's funny i found this quote they were ta- Wolfenson was talking about why people want to get into the nba and why teams are currently available and he was saying that owners are selling now because they bought in for three million and now it's just good business sense to get out because of this skyrocketing prices of these franchises and to think about what that would mean in today's dollars, and just how much it has changed since then, with teams being sold for one and a half, two billion dollars, was just but shocking to me.
1: It is, but the mentality is exactly the same. I mean, we've seen owners saying the exact same quote about why they're getting, yep. why teams are selling for a billion, billion and a half dollars today, and they say the same thing: it's because it's good business, and these teams are you know, still going up in value. You know, here we are. Yep.
0: Every decade, you hear the same quote, and then the next decade, the team's worth 50% more than it was the previous decade.
1: It's just insane.
0: <laughs> so the, as they're putting together this task force trying to get a team to Minnesota, there, there was a list of concerns about why basketball in Minnesota might not work. Uh, the concerns were A, hockey, uh, B, the U of M, being a, a big draw in the basketball world here, uh, C, harsh weather, which we still have not gotten rid of as a stigma of the Minnesota market, uh, D, race. Will white Minnesota support a game with so many black players? Thank you. Nineteen eighty-five. E. The need to attract about thirteen thousand per game to be profitable, which I'm not sure we even do now with the lack of success the team has had after three decades. And F. The impression that the region has twice rejected pro basketball, not only with the Lakers but also with a couple uh, of off-brand teams like the Muskies uh, throughout the decades. So. Um, there were reasons why people were skeptical about the t- twin cities working out as a market for the NBA, but uh, lo and behold, the savior David Stern steps in. Uh, June twenty second, nineteen eighty five, Stern's quoted as saying, "Minneapolis has terrific potential. I consider it to be a city that has the size and demographics to support a team. It is a good TV market and good buildings, and Mister Wolfenson seems to be a very successful businessman."
1: Yeah, you know, and then those list of reasons of why it wouldn't work. The most Minnesota reason of all is the U of M that, right. that popped up all the time. I remember after the North Stars were gone and they were trying to get a hockey team back here, the U was trying to make us think about that, but while well, that we are, the Gopher for hockey team is going to lose support. It's just, it's so annoying. <laughs> it's, it's like the city only looks at, you know, we have colleges all over the state Mm -hmm. but that it's like anybody on the outside of Minnesota probably only has ever heard of the U of M because it's the only university that this city or the state seems to care about. And they care about it to the detriment of other opportunities like this. It's just, it's hilarious to me because I I don't remember the U being the reason for a basketball team, maybe not working here, but I do remember that popping up for a hockey team. I even remember it when the twins were possibly going to move many years later. And I'm saying, you know, that, well, we just can't support that many sports teams in this town, and the uh, Gopher hockey we, was one of them. The Gopher football, uh, but Gopher football's never been a super huge deal no. since like 50s and 60s. I mean, it's been decades since they've been a huge draw. But it's you know, it's just the most Minnesota thing ever to ha- include them to try to protect them for some <laughs> some reason. So yeah, so at that
0: same time in 85, Stern mentioned a few areas that might be interested or might be possible expansion locations, including Miami, Charlotte, Santa Ana, California, and Toronto, uh, which I found slightly interesting that uh, Santa Ana apparently didn't go anywhere, but Toronto was on the back burner as early as uh, the mid-80s. So the fact that they came back in the mid-90s and got an expansion team was interesting. Um, Stern said that the expansion process was Possible as early as the 87-88 season, and possibly even as early as 86-87. But the number one blocker at the time was that he wanted all 23 of the current teams to be profitable. And the number of profitable teams over the past three years prior to that had been 6, 8, and 11, respectively. And they expected 13 to 15 profitable teams in the
1: 85-86 season. Smart business. I mean, it just that makes sense. Yeah. No, it's probably why Stern's going to go down as one of the best commissioners of a sports of any sport ever i mean he he routinely made smart decisions and that like why add teams when you have half your league not being profitable
0: well especially when 18 out of the 23 current owners needed a vote to approve expansion they couldn't bring it to the to a vote until they had found a way to make all those teams profitable in and of themselves so um, stern said if the nba continues on its current course and keeps momentum it's only a matter of time before they expand Uh, we have to worry about the existing league and be the kind of place cities want to join uh, so network and cable TV contracts were up for renewal in the fall of 85, which we saw a similar case a couple of years ago, right before the boom of the Golden State Warriors and the cap spike. Um, but with those TV contracts changing every, every decade or so, it just makes a, a significant change in course over the finances of a league and what that league is possible or capable of
1: doing. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if you look at back then all the different sort of hurdles they had to get over before a team could actually get here. And it's only gotten more complicated, I'm sure, today, which is, you know, and they're at a pretty healthy level of teams. They're probably not looking to expand anytime soon. But, you know, it, even then, it was a pretty complicated thing, you know. I mean, there was – you talk about network and cable was pretty new in 1985. There wasn't like there was a ton of cable contracts. And a lot of the games were still on tape delay back mm-hmm. in 1985. In early, so, yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, – Stern's really the guy that, that kind of got them out of the tape delay era – And on live TV, and then actually was paying attention that he had the vision of what the league could be when it wasn't that yet in 1985, you know, being this giant money maker, um, and really a cultural thing. I mean, it's a basketball star. I mean, obviously, once Jordan hit the league, the, the biggest sports stars in this country have always been basketball players, and part of that's you know, football players. Always would complain they have to wear a helmet and people don't recognize their face and stuff. But the NBA player, you know, there's that. If you went down the list of the top 10 or 15 sports stars of the last couple of decades, you might have, you know, Mike Tyson might be in there as a boxer, but a lot of them are going to be basketball players.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and at this point, Harv and Marv are stepping in. They're really getting the a team. So they'd even made runs at Milwaukee and Utah. Before those teams found local owners uh, trying to bring to buy purchase those franchises and move them to Minnesota, and there's, at that point they said that they'd be interested in purchasing a team, an expansion franchise, if the cost was somewhere between fourteen and sixteen million. But they may cool off if the NBA decides to charge twenty, 20 million or more for a club. Which uh, save that on the back burner because we'll come back to how much it actually costs them by the time that this whole thing comes to fruition. But um, later later in the year, October nineteenth, nineteen eighty five. Minnesota holds an exhibition game between the 76ers and Cavs. Uh, my boy, World Be Free, ends up being the, the top scorer of that game. I uh, knew that guy when I worked with the 76ers. He was the best-dressed man in every single room he ever stepped into. So <laughs> I have a picture of myself and World on my last day with the team when I wore a a, a white sport coat and a, a bowler's cap and just kind of uh, tried to step up my game a little bit. But um, <laughs> World was a great guy. But anyway, so Russ Granick, the executive vice president of the NBA, is in Minnesota, and he says that they are definitely at the top of the list for expansion, and that Wolfenson and Ratner are the leading candidates for potential owners. So uh, it's definitely looking good for Minnesota at this point. Miami, Tampa, and St. Louis are now mentioned as possible locations for a uh, a franchise location. So it it seems to be shifting every single day at this point as to who's available, who's interested, who's looking to get a team, but... At least in the local papers, Minnesota's looking good in terms of the possibility of getting a, a franchise at this point.
1: And it does. I mean, it, I find it weird whenever the people talk about Minneapolis not being a big enough market to support teams. We're, we're still a top 15 market mm-hmm. in this country. Um, I, to me, basketball, especially downtown Minneapolis, fits beautifully, especially if they have a good team. I mean, obviously, we grew up with the, the KG era and, you know, that Target are hopping in. But... It, like, if you would have told any of us in 2004, at, sitting in a Target Center for a Timberwolves game, that people actually thought this was a bad place to have a basketball team, you would have thought they were crazy. It was, that place was hopping. And so, I, you know, and then you look at, like, St. Louis hasn't ever been a good sports town outside of the, the Cardinals. You know, they had a football team a couple times, you know, and it would go yep. away. So that one doesn't make sense. The Florida cities, they never support their teams unless they're winning. So, you know, even like the Heat, I mean, the Heat, even post LeBron for a little while there, you know, they were not selling out and they had been coming off, you know, several championships. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Tampa, I can't imagine Tampa being a good basketball town with a bunch of, you know, snowbirds from who are sort of semi-retired. So again, Minneapolis, I mean, I, it seems to make perfect sense that they were at one of the top destinations for a new team.
0: They definitely were. And by March 3rd of 1986, they were traveling to New York with a $100,000 check to try to make a formal uh, application for an expansion franchise. Uh, Wolfenson, Ratner, Governor Rudy Purpich, George Mikan, and Wolfenson's son-in-law Bob Stein, who will take on a very large role in the team, uh, later head to New York. Uh, They head with the check and, quote-unquote, a lot of other ammunition to formally apply for their expansion franchise. Miami and Orange County, suburban L.A., had already applied for expansion, and other probable applicants were Charlotte, Orlando, Toronto, and St. Louis. So once again, the, the list of cities has changed, but uh, Minnesota and Miami still seem to be there at the top, um, and now the expected cost of a franchise is up to $20 million. So despite their previous claims that they wouldn't be interested at that cost, they're still moving forward. Uh, but once again, keep that number in mind because it's going to change again.
1: Yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot, you know, And sitting here in 2020 seems like, wow, that shouldn't really hold up a deal.
0: <laughs> all right, so this is all happening. They're officially applying for a club. They're getting a lot of support from David Stern. They're trying to really get their names at the top of the list. They're using uh, the different available arenas in the cities. Uh, the Met Center, the Metrodome, and the St. Paul Civic Center is a reason why we would be the top choice. We should We would be able to host a team as quickly as possible. Other cities would have to build a new arena. But at the same time, there are rumors, according to Sid Hartman, that the NBA might come to Minnesota sooner than an expansion franchise since both the Utah Jazz and San Antonio Spurs may be available for the right price and that neither team has been drawing well. And then within three more months, by June 25th, Wolfenson comes onto the comes into the paper, does an interview, and says that they almost bought the Jazz. They were literally in the signing room, with the Jazz ownership, before they changed,
1: had a last-minute change of heart, how different would that have been, huh? Yeah, because I remember. I feel like it happened one more time, where not not to Minneapolis, obviously, but that the Jazz were close to being sold to another city. So years later, but just you, you look back at how good that franchise was, not that long after this period, for you know a decade plus with Stockton and Malone, and you know obviously who knows if if they would have came to Minneapolis, if that team looked anything like it did. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it would have been, you know, all sorts of questions. Would they have kept the name? The jazz doesn't really seem to fit Minnesota, but it definitely doesn't fit Utah. No. (laughs) So, so, you know, you have that, um, you don't have the whole expansion with, you know, new, new coaches and new people who have never run a team before. So you would, you would actually have some, some sort of a structure already in place. If you would have bought a team that was already in existence.
0: Yeah, it was funny because I found one of Dan Barrero's first articles in the Star Tribune after he came up here from Dallas, and he argued that expansion was absolutely the right way to go because what was the potential of the Utah Jazz, and how good could they really be when if you get an expansion team, you're guaranteed some of the top picks, and you could get a guy like Kendall Gill to turn your franchise around. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Everybody loves those picks be, until they actually see what they look like. Right, until they turn into Christian Lehner. Or Kendall Gill. I mean, it's I like Kendall Gill. as a Kendall Gill fan, but he's not a... Face on the franchise kind of guy. He's really not. So yeah, so Wolfenson said that the deal was so close that attorneys
0: for both sides were in the process of drawing the purchase papers. Uh, but instead, Larry Miller, who was a co-owner and had already been in the group agreeing to sell to Harvin Marv, uh, decided at the last minute to purchase the other half of the franchise. And he had only gotten the first half of the franchise 15 months earlier, uh, when Harvin Marv were interested the first time, to save the team from going to Miami. Uh, so this guy really steps in to keep this team in in Utah, um, and just earlier this year, eventually, the franchise ended up moving out of his family. So uh, big moves there by Larry Miller to keep a, a franchise in his in his state.
1: And I always looked at fondly by fans in Utah. You know, I mean, I've never lived there, but he always was sort of spoken of as one of the better owners in pro sports.
0: Yeah. So really a stand-up guy there Um, as a utah jazz fan i'm sure everybody loved the fact that he was willing to step in purchase the other half of the team and keep it there Um, but as you mentioned how much different would have been for the minnesota market if we had just brought in an already established team at the time rather than going through expansion and how how that has looked over the past 31 years but in just dropped this at the very end of the article when i was reading about this but apparently they attempted to buy the bucks too in 1985 so another team that could have just happened to show up in minnesota if a local owner hadn't showed up but neither of them worked out even with as close as the the utah offer came so they're back to expansion Uh, at this point they're being told that they need to have a a, an arena agreement in place in order to uh, really be taken seriously so bob stein once again is stepping in he's trying to be the one to secure a stadium decision so he's looking at uh once again the metrodome the met center and the civic center and uh at this point jerry bell who runs the metrodome is quoted as saying it would be impossible to have an nba schedule there due to conflicts with other sports and events um anybody that's been following for a certain amount of time knows that that eventually proved to not be true but whether that was a negotiating tactic or what uh, that was their stance at the time but uh, it did not take long for them to turn around and uh, actually sign a three-year agreement with the metrodome to to play there um they figured out a way to get things in and out. There was a large turnover time um, in how long it would take to set up the arena and tear it down after different events, and that was kind of a concern from the league. Uh, but that's where they decided on, much to the chagrin of, once again, Gordon and George Gund.
1: You know, I and just as an side, back to the, uh, the possibility of Utah being the team that came here, I just wanted to look up to see what was on that roster. Mm-hmm. You would have had a, a one-year player of john stockton and a rookie carl malone on that team coming to Minnesota, as as well as Thurl bailey who ended up playing some time in minnesota mark eaton was still there they had they had some players on that team that would have looked a lot different but sorry yeah we, going back to, to the stadium i know that um the metronome just seems like such a comical place for a basketball team to play because it's such a giant building
0: yeah and it all came down to the leasing agreement that they were able to get and what they were offered by the different uh, owners of the different venues. So Wolfenson came out and said that the offer, the lease offers that the guns had come to them with was not tenable, that they would have really not made any profit and they would have been just bleeding money in order to work work out an agreement there. So they went to the Metrodome. Uh, It was going to be a great agreement for those three years, but even the Metrodome. was untenable after those three years were up uh, because the Metro required anybody but the twins and Vikings to pay 9% of gate receipts and a 10% stadium tax after three years. So that really, really would have sucked all their profits. Um, so even though they have an, a stadium agreement in place, which they think puts them into the lead for, for expansion to put them as a, the top site, because they'd be the first city that could host basketball games. They also have to now start looking into the possibility of building their own arena. Um, so while they're signing the agreement with Metronome, they simultaneously propose to build a basketball arena as part of a hundred and twenty million dollar apartment, retail, entertainment complex on two blocks bordered by Sixth and Eighth Streets, and Hennepin Avenue and First Avenue. So, uh, if you think of that in today's terms, that's really where uh, Seven Mayo Clinic Square uh, and First Ave are. Um, so obviously that didn't end up being the eventual location, but that was that was the first their first choice. That's where they wanted to look at.
1: And pretty close, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, they're not far from there today. Um, you know, obviously, First Ave is right outside um, the, the existing Target Center. But, you it, it's it always seems funny to me when an owner says, oh, I'm hesitant to build a build a new stadium. And then all of a sudden they come back with this plan with all this other, you know, mm-hmm. apartments and tax breaks and all that stuff to it because it just seems like that would have always been the plan because <laughs> that's the money. That's where they're making all their money. You know, it's like you look at the Wilfs. Um, you know, with some of their deals and stuff, they, there's always other things connected to the stadium. So it's, it doesn't surprise me that they were, they were looking to do these other apartments and stuff that they, they can get the tax breaks, put putting the stadium in, and then piggyback, piggyback off that with the apartments by getting some, some probably pretty sweet or favorable tax arrangements there as well.
0: Yeah. And we've been bringing up the guns. We've been bringing up their, their need to build a stadium and, John Krasinski at The Athletic wrote an article a little while ago really about Glenn Taylor and the time when he eventually bought the team from Harv and Marv and laid out how a lot of the financial issues, a lot of the, what got the ball rolling on their need to sell the team was this decision to build their own arena using privately funded money to build it out of pocket. And so John had done this interview with Bob Stein and uh, he was talking about a conversation that Marv had had with uh gordon gund and gund was trying to convince him that the best way to bring a franchise to minnesota especially with the influence that gund held throughout the nba was to sign a, a deal at the met center and uh, marv didn't take too kindly to that so bob Sein said we sat down and the first thing out of gordon's mouth was you know marv we'd love to see you bring the nba back to minnesota and if you agree and we work out a deal to play at the met center i'll do everything i can to help you and the nba to get a franchise here but if you don't I'll call in all my chips and keep you out. So, so Marv's response, according to Stein, was, Gordon, I've lived about 60 years without an NBA team. I'll bet I can make it the rest of the way. <laughs> so then Stein says, and I'll never forget this, we're walking out of the parking lot, and Marv looks at me and says, screw them. we'll build our own arena. It's nothing more than a warehouse with seats in it. So, So essentially, I don't know how it all played out. There were... Rumors at the time that the Guns were going to try to play some of their leverage to get a lease at the Met Center. They're, they were brought up definitely once every few months by Sid as a contributing factor to either the possibility or the detriment of getting a franchise here. But according to Bob Stein and Marvin Wolfenson, that was a, a big player at the time to figuring out exactly how where they were going to play and whether or not they get a team.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, the, the poker game between the two of them was pretty... Pretty humorous.
0: Yeah, for some Minnesota guys trying to figure this whole thing out. It was uh definitely a lot of politics being played and Wolfenson is even quoted saying, I don't do politics, I make business decisions and we'll see where where the chips land for me. But so we're moving into September of nineteen eighty six here. Uh they're still making a play to try to be respected as a franchise, respected as a, a city that wants to bring a team in place. Um, at the, and at the behest of David Stern, once again, uh, they opened ticket sales for a potential franchise because Miami has already started. They've sold 7,000 uh, season tickets already. So Minnesota's going to try to make a name for themselves. They're going to try to catch up. Uh, they set the initial deposit at $50 as opposed to $95 in Miami and $100 for ticket sales in Orlando. Uh, and single game tickets at the time were expected to run from $2.50 all the way up to $25 for courtside seats.
1: That's insane. Yeah, I, as a, as a season ticket holder, that's insane. <laughs>
0: <laughs> as somebody who has a lifelong dream of sitting courtside at one NBA game, I just can't even imagine what it would have been like to just drop twenty five bucks and get to do that at every single game.
1: When I my first Timberwolves game was sitting courtside. My first my first several Timberwolves games because my dad had season tickets or a package of tickets every year for his business, and so we would sit down there and which is part of the reason why I think I'm such a giant fan of basketball because mm-hmm. you know that experience versus my first experience going to a Twins game and going to the upper deck and looking down at this giant field and you can barely see any – you can't even see their faces and recognize who they are. But, yeah, sitting courtside and we were sitting next to people like Kirby Puckett and Chuck Knobloch and, and people like that, and you're just like in awe. And they'll, you know how, how normal people even then could afford – Season tickets, not, and we were normal, but my dad got them through his business, so it was like, not, it wasn't like we just the whole family went. He had two seats, and <laughs> he had to pick his favorite kid that week to to take to the game, but to get them for two dollars and fifty cents, and that wasn't that much earlier than when I went. But I think the I still have my first tickets, and I should dig them on up for a future episode. But I think my first tickets courtside, the the price on them was like sixty five dollars. Yeah, now it had to be like. 94, 93, somewhere mm-hmm. in that era. So I, I don't remember exactly. That might have been like the $65 tickets, might have been a couple years after my first time going, but it was around that range. It definitely wasn't $2.50 to right. $25.
0: Yeah. So then within three weeks, ticket sales surpassed 3,500 uh, deposits. Um, they say less than 25% of those came from corporate buyers, and they're going to really start leaning heavy, heavily on the corporations uh, in the coming weeks. Um, but representatives from each of the six sites looking for expansion, which now include Minnesota, Miami, Orlando, Toronto, Anaheim, and Charlotte, are heading to Phoenix to make their final sales pitch at the en- annual NBA owners meeting. Uh, so at this point, Wolfson, Ratner, and Stein feel very confident that they're the only logical expansion choice for the 87-88 season since they have an arena ready.
1: I mean, and of that list, just about all of them, I mean, Anaheim is the only one that didn't get a team. Mm-hmm. At some point, right? Minnesota, Miami, Orlando, and Toronto, and Charlotte all ended up with teams eventually. They did. Yeah, they were definitely, they all had good plays.
0: They all had good bids. Um, Toronto had to wait a little bit longer than the rest, but uh, not tremendously longer, uh, as it turned out. No, and
1: Charlotte lost theirs and then had to get it back. Right.
0: (laughs) So they go in. They all make their bids um, shortly after. Once again, our favorite A couple of gents, Gordon and George Gunn, come out and say that they will vote against expansion uh, as only six votes are needed to uh, stop teams from entering the league. It's it's kind of a big deal when a team comes out and says that they're not going to be supportive of it. They say that it's strictly based on finances and about business, saying that there's no reason to have new teams yet. Um, As we talked about earlier, you want all your teams being profitable, but there are so many rumors at this point, especially with the minnesota franchise looking to play in the metrodome that there was some bad blood there that you just you just scratch your head and you wonder
1: mm-hmm. yeah totally that i'm sure it did
0: you know i had had to have played into it so even uh even sid came out and wrote that uh there's no doubt that the move to the metro metrodome upset the guns yeah yeah i don't doubt that at all so the guns along with uh what turns out to be all of st paul um are opposed to adding another indoor arena to the twin cities area which uh all of those concerns ended up proving valid since the met center and the civic center both kind of went defunct shortly after the target center was opened Um, but at the time they just seemed like grudge holders so i'm going to go with that because i like the target center better than either of those other two locations but uh, but for everybody that was concerned that the target center would take business and uh, profitability away
1: from those other locations they were correct I mean, and back then you didn't see a lot of investment back into these, you know, stadiums, mm-hmm. you know, or arenas. They they just sort of sat there, getting wear and tear, and getting smellier and dirtier and more decrepit every season. So it wasn't like today, where it, there's a little bit more of an investment. It's like the, the Target Center now. I mean, they're changing over the seats every couple of years now. I mean, the first. Probably twenty years of that building's existence, they had the same seats. Now it's like every handful of years, they have a new seats, they have new, you know, sections around the the concourse. You know, so I, I just think that era, people had a different mindset for what uh, an arena, sporting arena, should look like, and and how much you should really put into it. And it had maybe that change a little bit. Had to, there was more of a mindset around, well, okay we don't need a new stadium what what would it take to make the met center competitive right um that that may have worked but there wasn't the appetite to invest in it any more than there was to build a new stadium
0: right and i don't know what changes after october 3rd but by october 21st expansion is approved 23 to but to nothing by the league owners Um, (laughs) of at least one team and as many as three sometime between the 88 and 90 seasons um, this really only affects this decision. Really only affects the Twin Cities because they were hoping to have a team by 1987. That's why they had really gone in strong with the fact that they had an arena ready. Um, but they decide not to expand at the moment. There's a, a labor negotiation coming up between the league and the players, and they don't want to expand before that's complete. Um, so they decide instead that a five-man committee is going to tour the applicant cities and make a uh, recommendation. Uh, later so at this point it's looking okay Uh, their expansion is coming minnesota still believes that they've they've got a strong bid but it's not quite as strong as it was before Um, so now they got to do a little bit more selling a little bit more wheeling and dealing to try to really solidify their bid
1: yeah and i would guess that 23 and 0 vote had to do with stern i bet you stern went and talked to each of the owners that had reservations he probably laid out his vision for how he saw things playing and he probably told them look time to get on board you know we're we're gonna expand we need to get you know more teams so that we can get a wider audience so that more people care about your team when they come into town so um that would be my guess is the big thing that kind of put put some of these people at ease was stern's vision for how to grow this thing yeah so
0: at this point the wolves well not even the wolves oddly enough The Minnesota franchise needs to pick a name. So they start a contest uh, in the local paper. They send out the ability for people to submit bids. Uh, They're going to receive nominations. They're going to take a look and come up with the two best and send those out to the city councils of each city in the Minnesota and request uh, votes that way. Um, So... The winner, whoever suggests the or that at least the first person to suggest the winning name, will receive a pair of tickets to Seattle for the nineteen eighty-seven NBA All-Star Game, valued at thirty-five hundred dollars. And second and third place will each get two season tickets in the twenty-five dollar and twenty dollars sections, respectively. So I'm assuming that was only season tickets for that first inaugural season and not lifetime season tickets. Uh, But I would rather kind of have season tickets for a season than a trip to see one basketball game in Seattle if it was just me.
1: Right. And, I, you know, oddly enough, I remember this being in the newspaper, and I remember seeing the list of names of one as a kid going, what is a Timberwolf? Right. Like, yeah, I didn't know. And like, I obviously, you knew what wolves were, but I didn't know the difference between, you know, I didn't know what a Timberwolf was. And then um, I personally was pulling for the Polars or the Mosquitoes. <laughs> Those are the two names as a kid that I really liked.
0: Yeah, so by December 20th, they have two finalists, names, or two finalists named, as you mentioned, the Timberwolves, which at the time was two separate words, Timber Wolves, and Polars, uh, which Harv and Marv are both big fans of, having gone to Minneapolis North. But uh, some of the losing suggestions were the Jumpstarts, the Lunatics, uh, the Wobegons, which just makes me throw open my mouth a little bit, uh, <laughs> the Skeetos, not even Mosquitos, it's apostrophe Skeetos. Uh, the Woolly Mammoths, the Skyjackers, the Killer Carp, the Chill, the Snowbounders, the Liberals, and the, the Stassens, the Kentucky Downers, and the Ooftas. So uh, Minnesotans continue to just be the worst.
1: <laughs> There's was just some pretty questionable choices that <laughs> were on, <laughs> on that list. I mean, like the Polars is a legit name. Um, obviously, we ended up with Timberwolves, but... You know, I would have been happy with the bullers as well. I'm, I'm much happier with the, with the Wolves name now that you know they've become my team and I've grown to love it. I, I can't it's like naming your child. You once you've settled on a name, it's kinda hard to imagine them with one of the other choices. Well let's just say it's not near the bottom of the pack in
0: terms of worst NBA team names.
1: That's that's true.
0: I would I guess I would either vote for Pelicans or Wizards and I'm not sure which one is more ridiculous.
1: Yeah, I I, I think wizards are the bottom of the barrel for me but pelicans are uh they a strong consideration yeah, i'm not exactly, even a big fan of the magic i think that's a yeah weird. that was a marketing ploy yeah oh yeah disney yep <laughs> <laughs>
0: so they introduced this contest in november and by january they have a team named chosen they're now the timberwolves uh the other three locations that had been Put in as finalists Miami Orlando and Charlotte also have team names chosen uh obviously in the Miami Heat and the Orlando Magic as we mentioned and the Charlotte Spirit were actually their original name that had been selected uh, I don't know when that changed I haven't gotten that far in my historical research yet but I
1: never uh, even heard that that's that's interesting I never heard of that that yeah. name you know what's funny is you know you finding that they preferred Polars because they went to Minneapolis North. I always assumed because his last name was Wolfenson that mm-hmm. they they are the ones that lobbied hard for Timberwolves.
0: Yeah, that's what I assumed as well, uh, knowing that Marv Wolfenson was one of the original owners. It's kind of like a uh, Bob Johnson for the Charlotte Bobcats, right? Right. Just kind of a similar naming structure there, but it turned out it was just a, a random submission by a, a local fan, and uh, it ended up winning due to the vote of the city councils. So. Um, so we're moving forward. we got a name now. We're now the Timberwolves. I can start referring to this team as the Timberwolves rather than the Minnesota expansion franchise. It'll make it a lot easier on me. Uh, so by December, uh, Sid's reporting that the expectations in the league is that Minnesota, Charlotte, and either Miami or Orlando will be chosen as expansion franchises, one of them coming each of the next three years. And the reason that it was going to be three uh, was that they wanted to make the league have an even number of teams again. So strong preference to either have one or three expansion franchises, but with the number of strong bids that had come in, at this point they're really leaning towards three teams as of December of 1986.
1: Um, makes sense. a yeah. lot easier to schedule when you have even teams.
0: So, you know, obviously we know what, what ends up happening, but that definitely makes sense. Um, so we're moving forward now, and we need to find a way for them to solve this arena issue. They still have their three-year deal worked out with the Metrodome, but they got to build their own arena. Um, So in January of 87, they begin negotiations with the Minneapolis Community Development Agency on an 18,000 square foot arena um, that is going to be largely uh, privately funded. And by February 18th, the funds that are going to be uh, thrown their way by Minneapolis are, are okayed. So We're moving forward. It looks like they're going to be able to build their own arena on the site that we now know as the Target Center. Um, They're definitely uh, optimistic about this, really solidifying their bid for an expansion franchise. Uh, Wolfenson at the time even uh, thought that there was a possibility of luring the North Stars over to play at the Target Center. So once again, a little tête-à-tête with the guns and uh, trying to stick them in where it hurts. but. (laughs) the john carr the met center president called it economic suicide to bring in another indoor arena to the twin cities and uh just thought that it would ruin the ability for the other arenas to to survive which as we talked about was true but um so now we have an arena they're going to build one they've got one signed for the next three seasons Uh, and the nba officially announces a final expansion price of 32.5 million which if you remember correctly Wolfenson had come out and said that as long as it was between 14 and 16 million, he was still on board. So a little bit of a a jump there.
1: Yeah, like double. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So, but apparently they're so far down the road here that uh, they're still in, uh, in a panel on April 2nd, 1987, officially recommends Minnesota as an expansion team for the 1989 season. Um, And this was largely due to due to a contingency that they could play in the Metrodome for no more than one year. Uh, they saw the Metrodome as an unviable location long-term, and they said as long as you get that building started, they get that arena started, and get in there by uh, 1989, you're good to go. Um, so the recommendation recommended Charlotte for 1988, and once again, either Miami or Orlando for either 88 or 89. Not a, not a firm recommendation on those two yet, but um, that five-person panel that had been sent out gave the recommendations, and my the Miami group was shocked to not be recommended as a key team um, or as one of the finalists, and strictly for 1988. So they were quite unhappy that they weren't uh, given the top billing there.
1: Starting to come together, I, I, and at this time as a kid, I don't know you were you're a couple years younger than I am, but I, it, like the excitement was starting to build. People were actually starting to talk about you know getting a team. You know, like the older fans in the area would fondly talk about the the Minneapolis Lakers. Um, but for k- us kids, we didn't know what professional basketball looked like. you know. So we were, as sports fans, extremely excited.
0: Right. At this point, it's Magic, it's Larry, it's even Michael, Isaiah, and the bad boys. Everybody's just kind of living through the NBA vicariously through other cities. And there's just some real excitement to bring the NBA back to Minnesota. And not only for the ability to have a team, but to also see those players come to the to the market, to be able to see them locally, to be able to go to those games instead of having to travel
1: outside to go see them exactly this is about the time I started becoming a basketball fan just because I knew okay we're gonna have a team coming I want to start to learn who all these other players are my my first favorite player was David Robinson he was a a rookie of the year prior to us getting our team um so I started following him even you know when he was at the Navy and and started watching some college basketball and all that so it was definitely when things were starting to pick up for me as a uh young basketball fan yeah this was the time
0: and speaking of the time we've made it chad we've made it till april 22nd 1987 the nba has officially approved and announced that four new teams will join the league and what is a shift from the recommendation miami and charlotte will join in 1988 minnesota and orlando in 1989 Uh, david stern said the board of governors was in the terrific position of not being able to say no geographically this is a terrific filling out for the nba florida is our fastest growing state north carolina is experiencing wonderful growth and with the franchise no longer in kansas city we could use a little more midwest representation so i'm so glad we got to be the midwest
1: representation (laughs) yeah i guess they forgot about the bucks already
0: yeah the bucks chicago detroit whatever (laughs) they don't count but so the weird thing about all this and what i found very interesting is that with each passing year the nba divisions have to shift now as new teams are introduced
1: so it was always like annoying for the where the wolves ended up division wise absolutely i mean
0: it's been the worst ever since they joined but in 1988 the charlotte spirit once again were going to be in the atlantic and miami in the midwest with sacramento moving permanently to the pacific i don't know how that made any sense to anybody but that's what they had to do for a year So in 1989, Miami will switch to the Atlantic, and Charlotte to the Midwest, and Orlando beginning in the Central. So, mines are blowing up all over the place as people are reading this in the newspaper. And then finally in 1990, Charlotte will move to the Central, and Orlando to the Midwest. And Minnesota will just be in the Midwest the whole time. And then in 1991, Orlando will finally move to the Atlantic, and everything will be hunky-dory apparently, but... The fact that teams were changing divisions every single season for four straight years just kind of blows my mind a little bit that they couldn't figure out a more substantial and permanent way to do that.
1: Yeah, it's probably why we never got another realignment because they probably took so much flack for how they handled that situation. That's why even when it made more sense to to pair the, the Wolves with Chicago and Detroit and Milwaukee and, you know, teams in their geographic region. So we don't have to stay up till 10 o'clock just to see tip off. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that's probably partly why they didn't want to realign. Cause they just were like, you know, we've been down that road and nobody's happy. And it's like, well, of course you, you boggle it so bad. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> it just, you know, I don't, I'm sure they didn't want to disrupt, you know, natural rivalries that had already formed, but they, they were sort of, not looking down the road, it, it didn't appear.
0: Yeah, and just one last time, just for good measure, as one last jab, Sid throws in, apparently Gund, who operates Met Center and owns the Cleveland Cavaliers and the North Stars, tried without success to get fellow owners to force the Timberwolves to play at the Met Center. So just a little bit more fun with the Guns as we try to get a team here in
1: Minnesota. Well, of course, we take them at their word. It had nothing to do with it. That's, that's not why they were going to vote against it.
0: No, no, not at all. It was all a business decision. They all just, they wanted to make sure that the Cavaliers were looked after. (laughs) So, well, we made it. We have an expansion team. We're going to have a franchise in Minnesota called the Timberwolves. Now we got to put together a staff,
1: Chad. Yeah, and where do you start with that? You know, you're in a market that has not had professional basketball for 30 years. And, you know, so you have not a deep well of people to go to, you know, unless you take somebody from another market. Uh, But, you know, Minnesotans don't like doing that. They sure don't. (laughs)
0: So I bet you you we'll find a couple uh, familiar names to the good old Minnesota basketball fans next time on Howl History.